Good morning. If you would, please turn with me to Mark chapter 2. We'll be finishing up Mark 2 today. Have you ever encountered a tool and wondered what on earth it was for or what it did? I've had the experience of being at tractor shows or at garage sales and running into an old-looking tool and having absolutely no idea which end went up and which end went down and what it did. Um, somehow, I got to adulthood without knowing what a log roller was. Uh, Steve uh, enlightened me. Uh, I cut a lot of wood growing up but never used a log roller. It's basically a stick and a hook. Sometimes the stick is fancy and sometimes it's not. But uh, the basic idea is you put the stick on one side of the log, there's a hook that goes over, drapes over the log, and you pull it like this and it rolls a log over for you. You know, pretty useful. Uh, anybody who's ever used a tool knows the experience of using a new tool for the first time. Uh, you got to figure out how it works and then you got to work it. Uh, it's always nice to be able to talk to somebody who has used that kind of a tool before, right? It's nice to have somebody come along and and give you some insight on how to use it. Now imagine if you could talk and learn from the person who invented that tool itself, the person who came up with the idea of it in the first place. I bet you'd walk away having a pretty good idea of how that tool works. Well, in our text this morning and in the text we'll be in next week, we get insight into the Sabbath. And we get insight into the Sabbath from the Lord of the Sabbath himself. We get to learn about the Sabbath from the one who really knows what he's talking about. We get to learn about the Sabbath from the one who enjoyed the first Sabbath. So would you read along with me? We'll pick up in chapter 2, verse 23, and we'll read through to the end of the chapter. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Let's pray together. Lord, we are glad to be your people this morning and glad to gather together in your name. Thank you, Lord, that you have spoken to us. Thank you that you call us to pray to you and to sing to you. Lord, we pray that you would help us this morning as we look into your word. Pray that you would transform us. Help us to find our rest in you and help us to work for your glory. Lord, we pray that you would... Help us to live according to how you've made us. We bless you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So we think through this text. Uh, I think one of the, the key things this is calling us to is to accept Jesus as the Lord of the Sabbath. And we'll see that as we work through this. I want to see it in three parts here. We want to 
think together about the good of the Sabbath, the good of the Sabbath. Then I want to think about the Son of Man, as Jesus calls himself here. Then I want to think about him as the Lord of the Sabbath. Let's think together about the good of the Sabbath, and in doing that, let's think through the story that we're given here. Uh, Here Jesus is going through the grain fields with his disciples, and as they're going along on the Sabbath, they're, they're picking grain and eating it. Uh, I think Luke's gospel tells us that they're, they're kind of grinding the, the kernels in their hand, taking the husk off and eating it as they go. Uh, now, what they're doing is, is perfectly lawful as far as the law goes. Uh, Deuteronomy 23:25 says that it's fine to go out in your neighbor's grain field and, and pluck grain. That, that's not a problem. Now, you would be breaking the law if you went out with a sickle and started harvesting your neighbor's grain. That's prohibited in Deuteronomy 23.25. But what they're doing is fine. Uh, But the Pharisees come with their challenge and say, why are your disciples breaking the law? Now, how is Jesus going to respond? It would seem that the diplomatic thing to do would be to point to that reality, that Well, no, technically it's not breaking the Sabbath. There's no Sabbath law against eating grain as you're walking through a field. Uh, He could have responded that way, but instead he responds in a way that just continues to ratchet up the conflict. We have been seeing already in multiple accounts now that Jesus is uh, sparring with the Pharisees and the scribes, and the conflict just continues to build as we go along. His response to them Uh, may have insulted their intelligence. He says, have you ever read that part of the Bible? I mean, now here are experts on the law. Here are people who who give their entire lives to studying. He says, did you ever read that one part in in the Bible? Uh, Of course they have. Uh, It's not that they haven't read it, but uh, he's drawing something to their attention here. He says, have you ever heard about what David does with the showbread? To paraphrase what happened there. Uh, And in that story, uh, David has just left the company of Saul for good. Um, You might remember uh, at that point, David has been in and out of Saul's favor, and he's, for the last time, been around uh, Saul. He's been chased out, and Jonathan goes, and he says, if I shoot an arrow uh, farther than you, it's time to go. If I shoot it closer, I think that's how it went. If I shoot it closer, basically you can come in. The arrow goes far. David knows that it's, it's time for him to go and not come back. He's fleeing. He's fleeing with his men. Comes to the high priest, and they're hungry. They don't have much. They're out of provisions, and they ask, do you have anything for us to eat? And the only thing that's available there is the showbread. This is the bread that was to be baked every day and put on the table inside the tabernacle. So in the tabernacle, you had the first holy place. Behind that, you had the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies. And this table had the showbread on it, and there was the menorah, the candle on the opposite side. It was supposed to be before the Lord, and it was given to the high priest and to his family. It was meant to be a provision for the Levites, and it was for them. So Jesus says it's not lawful for anybody else but for them to eat. Um, Now... In the big picture, was it a sin for the high priest to give this bread to others? Now, I would tend to think it probably was not a sin. Uh, It seems here that the intent of that law, giving this to the high priest and to his family, 
was meant for the good of the Levites. As you will recall, the Levites had no inheritance. That's spelled out again and again and again. Levi, his people, no inheritance. Their inheritance was the Lord. And what they had provided was the sacrifices, the ones that weren't completely burnt up. They, that was to be their food. Uh, and the showbread was to be their food. And it was a law that ensured that the Levites had something to eat, that the high priest and his family had food. Uh, and so as Jesus brings this up, on the face of it, it would seem to be a breaking of the law. But potentially, according to the intent of that law, I don't know that it was a breaking of the law, but Jesus is putting it in front of them, giving them something to think about. Uh, and uh, as he, he's citing this story from 1 Samuel to halt the Pharisees' accusations. Now, what is the major flaw of their accusations. We've already seen a little bit that they, they're expanding on the law. And that was, if you look at the uh, literature related to the, the case laws and the expanded law that comes, the Pharisees sought to put a, a hedge of protection, so to speak, around the law, uh, extending and extrapolating the law out further than what it was given in order that people would not break it. Uh, but Again, Jesus isn't going there. He's not attacking that point. Uh, I, what I think he's getting at here is the fact that the Pharisees have so focused on the prohibition that they have missed the whole point of the Sabbath. They have so expanded the prohibition that they have missed the good intent of why God gave the Sabbath in the first place. He says it beautifully that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. God made man on day six. God instituted the Sabbath on day seven. It's not as if God had made the Sabbath and said, man, I really need to get somebody to observe this. Rather, God made man first and then he made the Sabbath for man. The good of the Sabbath is that it was made for our good. Now, we know that God created all the world in six days. Uh, on the other hand, we, we know that God certainly could have made it in a flash. I mean, did it take God that long because he just couldn't do it any quicker? He didn't have the means or the resources to go any faster. No, I think God created in six days for our benefit, to, to paint us a picture. He knows how he made us. And uh, the, the model I think that's here is that man would work for six days and then would join God in a Sabbath rest. So uh, we're going to think more about the Christian and the Sabbath in a bit. But I think at a bare minimum, as we see this, uh, what we should take away from this is that the call for rest is for our good. God who made us knows how he made us, and so the call for rest is for our good. God gives all of his laws for our good. God does not give laws so that he can be a killjoy or because he thinks we need something to keep us busy. God gives law for our good. And as we think about the Sabbath rest, we are not machines. 
we were not made to go forever nonstop. Even machines break down. How are you doing at resting? Are you intentionally taking advantage of this gift of rest? Now, I understand that some seasons are insanely full. I know that some seasons simply can't be helped. And if you're in that season, then ask God for help to think about how to find rest, even amidst the chaos. But the reality for many of us is that we make ourselves busier than we need to be. It is possible to work more than we should. Work is good, but it is not God. While some are guilty of avoiding work like the plague, uh, the other side of it is that we would find our ultimate identity in our work. In fact, some people hate work because they've invested too much value in it. They, they look to work as a means to find value in this life, and then, when it fails them, in turn, they hate it. Uh, that is what often happens when we I, I idolize anything in this world. Work is a good gift from God, and so is rest. We want to apply both of those to ourselves, that we would work as God has made us to work, and that we would rest. God made the Sabbath for man, not man for the Sabbath. That's one of Jesus' statements to the Pharisees. But he doesn't stop there. He presses the point further. Next, Jesus says, So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now, there's a lot there. I want to focus next on the fact that Jesus calls himself the Son of Man and what's behind that. And then look at what he means by saying the Son of Man is the Lord even of the Sabbath. Now this title that Jesus gives himself, the Son of Man, we've already seen it once in Mark's Gospel, back in chapter 2, verse 10, when he heals the paralytic. Uh, he says to him, uh, your sins are forgiven. And uh, in response to that, uh, he, he tells the Pharisees that are there, verse 10, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He calls himself there the Son of Man. So the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. We've seen the title already. In fact, it's one of Jesus' favorite titles to use of himself. Uh, through the Gospels, it is used dozens of times, Jesus referring to himself that way. Where does he get this title? Uh, and what does he mean by it? Now, I believe that Jesus gets this title. Uh, I don't think he's inventing it out of nowhere. I think he gets it from the Old Testament. If you look through the Old Testament, the word is used, the phrase is used multiple times. It's also used in different ways, though, as you look through the Old Testament. In places like Job and in the Psalms, the phrase, son of man, simply describes a normal human being. Son of man is just another way to talk about Somebody who is of this earth, who is created as a man. Uh, in the book of Ezekiel, the phrase son of man is used dozens of times, and it's what God calls Ezekiel by. He's, Ezekiel's called the son of man there. One other reference that is unique is in Daniel, where in Daniel chapter 7, we'll read that in just a moment, uh, the son of man is one who is exalted and who reigns with God. So those are three distinct ways that it's used in the Old Testament. Uh, and so as we think about how Jesus uses it, 
uh, we've got that Old Testament, those references in our mind. I think certainly the title Son of Man refers to Jesus having a human nature. The fact that he is a man like us. He's a human being. Uh, I think it certainly points to that reality. It may even point to the prophetic role that he has. That's possible as well. Ezekiel's referred to that as a prophet. It may be there. Um, but I think it certainly refers to Daniel chapter 7. I want to read that with you. Uh, you can listen if you'd like, or you can turn there. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has the vision of the four beasts. And then in verse 9, his vision of the Ancient of Days, followed by a vision of the Son of Man. This is Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. Daniel says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, and its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed, and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. It's verse 13 now. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So here in this vision, we see one who is like a son of man who comes on the clouds to the Ancient of Days, and he reigns with the Ancient of Days. And so here's a reference here. Is there any evidence that Jesus sees himself in light of this figure, this son of man. Is there any pointer in the New Testament to that? Well, I think there is. In fact, if you turn back to Mark's gospel and turn to the end of it or towards the end of it, in chapter 14, when Jesus is on trial, I think he refers to himself in light of that figure in Daniel 7. Uh, you'll remember Jesus is uh, unjustly taken to court. His... Uh, kangaroo court overnight, and the accusations are brought against him there. Uh, if you jump down to chapter 14 of Mark, verse 60, uh, they've been making accusations, they're not agreeing. Verse 60, and the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. This is Mark chapter 14, verse 61, and again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? Here, Jesus describes himself as the Son of Man. He is 
coming with the clouds of heaven. He's at the right hand of power. Now this has a lot of overlap with that figure that we see in Daniel chapter 7. This son of man. I think Jesus, even as he uses this title, uh, I think he's catching a lot of things here. He's speaking about his human nature, certainly. But I think he's also pointing to this figure in Daniel 7 who comes with power, who is at the right hand of God. Uh, and he uses this title here, and we will continue to see the title, the Son of Man, used uh, throughout the rest of Mark. Uh, those who were at his trial understood that Jesus was ascribing to himself an exaltation that was befitting of God alone. Now, their understanding of Jesus was wrong, uh, and, and Jesus is right here. He is exalted. So we think about Jesus as the Son of Man, and we want to catch both of those. We want to appreciate the lowliness that he took on our flesh. And we want to appreciate the power that he came with, the, the glory that he has as God forever. And the Son of Man is the Son of God. Uh, have you come to delight in both of these realities? Do you value the humility of Jesus? So we look at him in the Gospels, we see that he takes on human flesh. He associates with the weak and the sinful, That's people like us. He touches and heals lepers. He spends time with children. We see him hungry and thirsty. We see him tired. In the garden, we see him sorrowful and troubled. Do we value the humility of Jesus in allowing himself to experience all of these things for our benefit. Further, does his humility, even to the point of dying on a cross, does that shape the way that we treat one another? Does that motivate us to count the needs of one another as more important than our own? Well, that's a, a bit about his humility. How about his greatness? Son of Man certainly has that uh, humility that we see, but how about his greatness? Do you delight in his exaltation? Does your heart grasp that your Lord and Savior is at the right hand of God? The one that we have invested our, our hope in is at God's right hand. He has been given the name above all names. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. Every knee, everywhere will bow to him, to the glory of God the Father. When you see Jesus, the humble Nazarene, do you see Jesus, the reigning king? Mark is inviting us in his gospel to see both those realities. And I think the title, the Son of Man, points us towards both of that. Well, as we return to the topic of the Sabbath being addressed here, we see then that Jesus says that the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Let's look at that now. And the obvious question for us is, what does it mean that Jesus calls himself the Lord of the Sabbath? Well, I think at a minimum here, we should, understand, we should uh, believe that Jesus understands the Sabbath rightly. For Jesus to be the Lord of the Sabbath had a minimum means that he understands it rightly. It's not as if the Pharisees got it right and Jesus got it wrong. 
they actually have no business challenging Jesus and his observance of the Sabbath. Uh, they truly don't know who they're dealing with. But I think there's more than that. If we bring in other scriptures at this point, uh, there's a, a few more things I think we can see here related to Jesus as Lord of the Sabbath. Uh, mentioned this already, but in Jesus' divine nature, the Son of Man enjoyed that first Sabbath rest. The scriptures tell us that the Son was the agent through whom the Father created the world. We saw that in Colossians 1.16 last year. It says, For by him, by the Son, he has created all things. It says, For by him all things were created. Hebrews 1, chapter 1, verse 2, Through whom also he created the world. Again, referring to the Son here. In John chapter 1, uh, referring to the Word, who is Jesus, says, all things were made through him. So there's this repetition again and again that God made all things through the Son. Everything is made through him. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were involved in the process of creating everything that exists. And therefore, uh, if the Son is involved in creation, then he took part in that first rest. He was resting on the Sabbath. The Sabbath did not predate the Son. And by extension, if the Son has enjoyed the first Sabbath, he also instituted it. Uh, God gave the Sabbath, and so Jesus, in his divine nature, gave the Sabbath. Uh, he's also the Lord of the Sabbath because he instituted it. And I think lastly, uh, he is Lord of the Sabbath because I believe he fulfills the Sabbath. And we can go to Hebrews chapter 4 here and look at this. We close our time together. Hebrews chapter 4. In Hebrews chapter 3, the preacher, the writer, has described how Jesus is greater than Moses. And he describes a rest for the people of God and describes the way that, as we saw in Numbers chapter 13, the people did not enter the promised land. The first generation didn't because they rebelled. Uh, in lack of faith, they rebelled against God. And as the author of Hebrews is continuing on in his explanation in Hebrews chapter 4, it says, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For, who have, for we who have believed enter that rest. As he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he's referring to, uh, I think it's Psalm 95, it is, uh, excuse me. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. 
For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. There's a lot there. There's a detailed argument going on. Uh, It would require a lot of time to go through every bit of it. But the author of Hebrews is wrestling with Psalm 95, uh, a, a psalm that's talking about a call for the people uh, to not rebel, to not harden their hearts like that first generation did in Numbers 13. And he's noticing that there is a future rest that people are being called to enter into. And again, this is David writing about this, this future rest. And he's arguing here, if Joshua, who brought the people in, had brought them complete rest, there wouldn't be any future day of rest that David, who's later than Joshua, who's referring to. And what he's mentioning is that we uh, can yet enter into God's rest. There's the, the Sabbath day rest he mentions here. And there is that call that stands, even in the day that this is written, even in the day that we live today, an invitation to enter into God's rest. Can you imagine that? To enter into the rest of God that he enjoyed on that first Sabbath. And Hebrews, throughout the entire book, is calling us to look to Jesus, our great high priest, who fulfills uh, various dimensions of the old covenant here. And I believe that Christians do not keep the Sabbath in the same way that ethnic Israel did because uh, many of these aspects are being fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, The invitation here is to rest by believing. Just as God rested from his works in creation, so human beings, sinful as we are, are to rest from our striving. There's something that comes natural to our heart that when we hear about a God in heaven, and when we hear that he has requirements, our natural bent is to try to fulfill that in our own power, to try to, to, try to strive and to make it there so that we can be presented before God in our own strength. That is a natural bent of fallen human beings. But the call is for us to rest from that to cease from that kind of striving to earn God's favor. And there's an invitation in here that we would rest by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. While I think it is important that we do find physical rest, we're still created the way that God created us originally. We still need rest. We've got to also see that many aspects of this rest that are prescribed and these Sabbath laws are fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, uh, if that was convoluted and long for you, uh, the application is simple. We need to rest in Jesus. We need to take our rest in Him. We need to find our rest in Him. So, has your soul found its rest in the Savior? And if it has, is your soul still finding rest in the Savior? Are you continuing to go to him and find your rest in him? Jesus invites us to come to him as the Lord of the Sabbath and find our rest in him. He is the place 
where our soul can rest. He is the place where we can find acceptance with God. We can put away the, the works-filled striving. I know that we've done that. I know that's our confession. And yet, we want to continue to do that. So often, when Satan attacks us and, and goes for our throats, we're tempted to turn around and try to justify ourselves. We're tempted to try to figure out, well, no, actually, I haven't done wrong. Uh, and in reality, in light of what Christ has done, we can say, yes, yes, I have sinned. We can confess that to God. And we can go to him knowing that he will accept us. We can rest from trying to justify ourselves in any kind of way. And we can give that over to God. So we find our rest in this Jesus who Mark is speaking to us about here. Um, we're going to continue to see what the Lord of the Sabbath has to say about the Sabbath as we turn to Mark chapter 3 next week. Let's go in prayer together.